Welcome to the Investment Clinic Live, your monthly 30-minute online chat with an investor. And now your host, Brindusa Burroughs. I'm really, really thrilled to end this day with a fantastic interview. My guest, Margaret Kane, Strategic Advisor at Circulate Capital. Margaret, we're really, really excited to have you. And thank you so much for accepting to join us today. Thank you for having me. We're really lucky to host you at the Investment Clinic Live. This is a, a product that we're, we have started earlier in the year. There's a podcast now out there on SoundCloud, as will be this interview today. So to all the people who are listening out there, let's just move on and introduce you. You are a strategic advisor to a number of impact investment funds, foundations, and advisors, including Circulate Capital and Quantified Ventures. Your area of expertise includes impact investment strategies in debt and equity and public-private partnerships. You are CFO and CIO at Closed Loop Partners, and there you work with cities and companies to invest in new recycling infrastructure and technologies. And even earlier than that, you were with Calvert, Calvert Impact Capital. That was where you managed strategic planning and uh, developed investment partnerships with agencies and uh, foundations. And prior to that, you work with uh, Pathfinder International. So a, a, I could say a longstanding career in impact, really, and uh, many, many aspects of it. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about how you got to this career and how you got to take all these opportunities that brought you here? Sure. So it's been very roundabout, actually, pun intended. I don't think I had a specific pathway mapped out at the beginning. So hopefully that's encouraging for the folks who are interested in getting into this, this world from an investor standpoint. I, you know, my overriding drive was and has always been to figure out how to use the capital markets to further a social agenda that benefits society and the planet at large. Because I, I view them as a very, the capital markets and all of their strengths and weaknesses as an extremely powerful tool. And that's what I found most interesting. There's many other tools that are extremely powerful and effective, policy, education, et cetera. But uh, for some reason, I, I really resonated with the mindset of investors. So I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky to work with some great institutions and some fantastic people. And I actually started in the community investment world and the public health world. And as I got more educated myself about the environment, about climate change, I started to work to introduce some of those concepts into the institutions where I was working. You may not know this, but in community investment work historically, which is an old practice in, in many places uh, in the U.S., you know, at least 50 years old, the environmental themes and investments are not really considered part of a typical portfolio. And it took quite a bit of convincing when I was at Calvert Impact Capital to make the link between environmental vulnerability, climate change, waste and pollution to the well-being of most vulnerable communities and people that are living in poverty or otherwise marginalized, which was the overriding mission of Calvert Impact Capital and many other community investors at the time. And I think since then, this was probably in 2014, you've seen an increasing movement in the community investment world to 
incorporating themes around the environment and sustainability into their investment thesis with, with increasing recognition of the vul- unique vulnerabilities that their, their constituencies face as a result of climate change and a, a kind of linear consumption economy. And that ended up leading me to closed-loop partners as well. In the course of developing this investment strategy for Calvert Impact Capital, I uh, ran into Rob Kaplan, who's an old friend of mine from business school, and he was founding closed-loop partners at the time. And I decided I should probably learn more about this concept of a circular economy, it being a very new idea, especially in the U.S., and and joined his team. And um, I've really, really enjoyed the opportunity to learn from this world and, and these wonderful people. And, uh, and we can go from there. <laughs> That's fantastic. It sounds like uh, you were able to seize the opportunities, but also that uh, you started doing this at the right time. There's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot more innovation and a lot more happening in the past, uh, you know, let's say five, five years or maybe a decade, you know, so, so for us really, we're, we're quite lucky to be active and operating, I, I believe at this time. We were lucky to have Rob earlier on the investment session. He did a yeah. great job talking about uh, circular capital. So, uh, so I'm Good. glad to I'm glad to hear he's an old friend. <laughs> yes. So maybe tell us a bit about your track record in investing in circular economy opportunities and some of the things that you're looking at currently, just to give us a flavor of the types of things that you've helped uh, helped invest in in the past and and what's on your table now. Sure. So I'll probably start with with Calvert, the environmental strategy that um, that I authored and developed a pipeline around, which they're carrying forward and expanding. The sustainability components there are really focused on natural resource use and conservation and regeneration. And that requires, from for an investor, and this obviously varies by the type of investor and the type of capital you have, but it requires the ability to value real assets and uh, increasingly businesses that are derived off of real assets, but don't necessarily have what would be traditionally recognizable in the credit world as collateral. And I'll give you an example. The Wastewater Opportunity Fund, which is a private equity fund that Equilibrium Capital launched, is a really neat fund. And they're building small-scale commercial anaerobic biodigesters that are co-located with operators like dairies and breweries that generate a lot of the biomass that, that makes these biodigesters function and makes the economics of, you know, providing that source of energy pencil out. And, you know, you have to understand that once you install something like anaerobic biodigester, like with much equipment on leased land, which is typical as well, you know, there's, you're not going to go, you're not going to drive up to that dairy or brewery a few, few years later if it underperforms and dismantle that biodigester and try to sell it on the open market. So, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of internal education that needs to happen. And, and it's not just in the, in the underlying assets and revenue streams. You have to understand these, you know, the contracts, the offtake contracts and the supply contracts. And you have to understand some of the emerging markets that are being created through regulation that assign credits and therefore monetary value to things like nitrogen and phosphorus reduction. All of these are opportunities for investors. And, and you know, I helped Calvert develop a pretty robust pipeline and, and several deals in that direction. Calvert's a $400 million fund of funds investing retail investment capital. 
mostly in private debt. So, so that was really the focus at, at Calvert. And then at closed loop, we had a debt fund. We ha- they have a debt fund and a venture capital fund. So there's a very early stage investment strategy. And then a debt fund, which Rob probably talked about as well, which focused on focuses on uh, municipal infrastructure and operators in the recycling waste businesses and focuses on building the recycling infrastructure and capacity in the United States. And so that you know included everything from a Green Mantra Technologies, uh, which is actually in Canada, that has a really neat depolymerization technology and is applicable to a really wide range of plastics. Um, And they turn it into a variety of things, but including something that's a ubiquitous product that is used in all of our homes and businesses, but we don't know about it, which is synthetic wax. And, uh, you know, to buying uh, carts, financing carts and trucks for the city of Waterbury, Connecticut. So that was a very direct investment strategy. The debt fund is about $100 million at closed loop, and the venture capital fund is much smaller, as is typical venture capital. And then I moved this year into helping Rob with Circulate Capital, which is a blended debt and equity strategy focused on Southeast Asia waste and recycling infrastructure and preventing ocean plastic leakage and pollution. Very different markets, very different investment opportunities there, but obviously, you know, a huge pressing issue. And also I moved into working with Quantified Ventures, which is another flavor, I think, in the circular economy. They uh, structure environmental impact bonds for green infrastructure. So far, all the projects have been in the U.S., but there's certainly international applications. And environmental impact bonds are interesting because they they internalize uh, the environmental value. They force individual parties to recognize the economic value of environmental outcomes and incorporate those into their financing transactions. And I think ultimately, when you think about what will what will the circular economy bring at its at its most mature realization, it will bring a full accounting of the costs of material use of natural resource degradation and regeneration, and it will incorporate externalities, whether that's through regulatory levers or or through um, increasing realities around the costs that natural resource degradation and waste present. So you can monetize future averted costs, and that's what environmental impact bond helps you do. And so I've been, you know, working on a number of those, including with big cities like Atlanta and Baltimore in the U.S., and, and then in some more rural communities as well. So since you're bringing this up, can I ask you one example? So we've been trying to understand throughout the day, you know, how does one decide what is and what isn't a circular economy investment? And so can you give us an example of one that is and one that isn't? Sure. So I, I guess I'll, I'll preface this with two things. One is that Every investor looks at the world through a bit of a different lens. And so categorically stating, you know, what is and isn't a circular economy investment is an exercise in subjectivity today. The second thing I'll say about that is one of the things that we saw at closed loop was it is almost impossible to close the loop within a single investment. And that's because this is systems work, 
you have to take a systems approach and try to connect the dots, right? At every point in the value chain around a material and consumption. And at every one of those points, you have different economies of scale that are operating. And therefore, those businesses, whether it's, you know, the businesses that are selling things to consumers, the businesses that are collecting items, the businesses that are manufacturing items, the businesses that are processing, recycling items, they all operate with kind of totally different financing needs and risk profiles and scale. So every time you you make an investment with a circular economy hat on, you have to have the broader system that that business plugs into in mind, and you have to understand their upstream and their downstream risks. I think then getting to the basic principles of circular economy investing It's when you're looking at investments that, and you're looking for intentional businesses that intentionally design out waste, that intentionally reduce pollution, that that's baked into their business model. It's not like a a nice to have or a sidecar operation, Mm -hmm. as in the less waste, the more money they make. You're looking at businesses that are recycling as much material as possible. Or you're keeping as much material in, in supply chains, reintroducing it as much as possible, the highest yield, the highest efficiency possible, that they're using materials in a way that represents the highest and best use too. This is actually a really tricky one. There are some great businesses out there um, that have proven technology and markets to recycle you know, material A into a process material B that has an end market. But in some cases, their end market, their end product is not really the highest and best use of the valuable inputs they're getting. There is a more valuable market for those inputs that replaces the need to have to extract them out of the virgin environment, if you will. Um, So the highest and best use test is probably the most rigorous test on the circular economy side but it is extremely difficult to meet as well. And you have to sort of balance that with, are we making things better? Or are we making things best? And that's, that's sort of an ongoing tension, I think, generally in environmental investing broadly, but specifically in the circular economy. And then finally, are you replenishing natural systems and resources? That's a, that's a really big problem. <laughs> that's a really big deal. And that, you know, that is sort of the part of the kind of the holy grail here. And I don't think, I don't think many businesses, I don't think society broadly has gotten to a sophisticated enough point and understanding of natural systems, frankly, and how they interrelate with business and society to hold up a lot of great examples in that regard yet. So I feel like that's a lot of uncharted space still and, uh, and would be a really interesting thesis for a, for a long-term investment strategy with a, with a very you know, long time horizon. There was a question. The question was about what is the role of of customers actually in making circular economy business models work? And it's a question that, again, we've been debating a bit throughout the day, whether your customer actually is a business or is uh, the end consumer an individual. Yes. So, and and customers can be defined a lot of ways, right? So for investors, and it depends on the nature of the investor, but if you're working in the retail investment market, if you're working at a investment bank or a private, private wealth shop, or your financial advisor, your customers are investors, are retail investors and are, are people who are placing their retirement funds with you or who are asking you to manage their, 
their family endowment or what have you. So on the, you know, in the investor facing world, investors as customers, their awareness of and commitment to the circular economy is huge, right? Because investor confidence and subjective qualities around investors actually end up driving quite a bit of product creation in the capital markets. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in that sense, developing product in response to demand is uh, primarily driven by that demand among certain types of investor clients. In the more kind of general sense of like customers and, and what they're demanding and what they'll pay for and what they want to consume, because this is a systems, this is a systems problem, I don't think you can leave consumers out of it. I think consumer education and behavior change is a critical component. Business can't solve for everything. It's not, in fact, that well suited to solve for certain things. And there are cultural elements as well in play around how people interact and, and how they think about waste and the environment. But the you know one thing that is consistent in society, almost globally, is that human settlements uh, view waste as a bit of a stigmatized area of operation or expertise. That's historically consistent. I live in Brooklyn. We used to cart pile our waste onto horse-drawn carts, and this is not that long ago. Drive those carts over to the East River and just dump them into the river. Just just right right out my front door, basically. And and you know, out of sight, out of mind. Obviously, that's now a big problem, especially now that our waste sticks around for longer because so much of it is plastic. But I think that cultural and sort of educational component is one of the essential barriers to overcome in order to achieve a more circular economy. And there are some really interesting messages that have been developed. And I think, you know, entities like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation have done a really great job of raising awareness, but there is, there's a lot of room to grow there. And, you know, the other thing as a former public health person, I'll also note is that after cohabitation with animals, improper management of waste is the primary source of disease and epidemics amongst human settlements. And it's been a problem ever since we urbanized and became became more agricultural as a society. You know, typhoid, cholera, I could go on with other nasty examples, but, you know, these things kill a lot of people and historically have killed a lot of people. And that is almost entirely due to mismanagement of waste. So, you know, it's not just an environmental problem. It's it's a societal issue. It's a it's a public health issue, and consumer awareness and education is critical to overcoming it. So, thank you for that. There's there's one question that I think is quite interesting. What would you respond to those who say that investing in circular economy is expensive? I I think that's a bit of a lazy response. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, I mean, expensive how? And, and again, it depends. Like, you know, are you are you investing in public equities? Because that's really cheap. It's really easy to invest in public equities. Anyone can do it. You know, you open up a brokerage account, an, an online brokerage account, and, you know, you pick a few stocks and you buy them. It's That's, you know, cost you 15 minutes of your time and a brokerage fee. If you're talking about bespoke private debt and equity investments, those are all expensive. That's the nature of those investments. There's a transaction cost 
whether you're investing in circular economy or, you know, software tech for enterprise solutions, which is, you know, your kind of standard vanilla VC Silicon Valley style of investing, it's still expensive. And, and that's why, you know, equity demands the returns it demands. So, so I think that that's a kind of a poorly thought out question. I think the question is, you know, is our business models that operate in the circular economy fundamentally less profitable? And therefore, do they cost their investors more from a return standpoint? And there's no benchmark to determine that yet. In the ideal world, too, and this goes back to this problem of externalities and how do you capture those. Circular economy-based businesses should have better margins because they are less wasteful. Waste is money. You are throwing away valuable material. There's also a cost to disposing of that waste. Someone bears it. It may not be the business today in all cases, but someone bears that cost and it will eventually come back to the business and, and the markets in which it operates. So circular economy businesses that generate less waste, that are more efficient in terms of their energy use, their resource use, their material use, they should generate better margins and therefore better returns for investors over the long run, particularly if they're operating in markets where there's otherwise scarcity. Thank you for putting the answer this way, because I think it is a common a common image that people have that uh, most of the impact investments actually are more expensive because they're more risky, et cetera. So, so thanks for explaining that. I think because most of our audience are entrepreneurs and primarily small entrepreneurs, small and medium-sized businesses and startups, could you share with them what are the, some of the two, three elements that an investor looks at in terms of risk mm-hmm. in a business? So when an investment lands on your table, top three things that that you're checking as an investor? So again, it it varies by by type of investment. Let's let's go with early stage small businesses. Yeah. I think, you know, you have the standard slate for early stage, which is, do I believe in the management team? How are they capitalized today? What's their governance around it? What's their product market fit? Do they know their audience? But from a circular economy perspective, there's a few extras, obviously, and that's not exhaustive. You know, there's the whole question of reasonable valuations and what have you. But, you know, I think the biggest thing is understanding where you sit in a system and understanding the system's risks. Mm. So you have to understand the economic and market realities of your counterparties upstream and downstream. Or more traditionally put, you know, your feedstock, the stuff that's coming in, and your buyers, the stuff that's going out. What are the natures of those contracts? What are the market realities of those folks? You know, businesses that, relied on cheap backhaul shipping to China on the West Coast of the United States, for example, recycling businesses, which was the vast majority of them. That was a that was sort of a small component of their business. If you were underwriting them, you know, seven years ago and looking at their financials, you would think, oh, this is great. You know, they have they have a cheap disposal component to their business and they don't have to incur landfill tipping fees. Fantastic. Those businesses are now caught off guard if they relied upon that and didn't understand the nature of their buyers and, and they're faltering as a result. So understanding the upstream and the downstream is, is probably the single biggest, it's not necessarily different, right? Because like your cost of goods sold, your unit economics on your products sold, that's a really standard analysis, yeah. product analysis and financial mm-hmm. viability analysis. But in the circular economy, you have to add commodities risks, 
you have to add consumption trends, you have to add regulatory risks. I mean, there's a much stronger focus on it. And the nature of the contracts is, is also really challenging because the vast majority of recycled plastic is bought on the spot market, for example, at all stages of that value chain. Long-term contracts are just not done. Mm. And without long-term contracts, you don't have a financeable asset, frankly. Right. Just, it just for working capital inventory needs. So, so that's, I think, one of the biggest weaknesses for a lot of the early stage businesses is they can't obtain long-term offtake for, for a number of things. Some of the technology plays are really cool in that regard because, you know, software as a service re- relies on annual subscription revenues and, and you kind of have locked in your market. And so the people that are applying those types of technologies to, to waste recycling, I think, like Kabadiwala Connect, are really promising business models from an early stage venture standpoint. The other, the other thing, obviously, is exits and, and strategic buyers. And, and I don't think, you know, there's almost no strategic buyer out there in the planet that self-identifies as a circular economy buyer. That's, that's one thing. That's a challenge for entrepreneurs who are identifying with a circular economy. The other thing is that, you know, certain certain parties that you would think would be strategic buyers are not going to be strategic buyers. Many of the consumer brands, for example, they don't tend to operate as strategic buyers. In, in many cases, in, in kind of in this sense, they their acquisitions are are typically around access to new markets, access to new customers. They buy brands. Mm-hmm. because that's what they're really good at. And when they've tried to sort of vertically integrate through the value chain, there, there are a lot of examples of that not working out so well. And so, you know, I think you have to know, you have to understand who's, who your buyers are. Yeah. Um, and, and it's going to be challenging. So the earlier you can sort of line that up, line up a path to a strategic acquisition or later round, the more investable your business will be, right? Because that's really what your early stage investors are are looking at. And, and that's a real challenge in some of these markets. I think when you're looking at the chemical recycling and some of the depolymerization technologies that are coming out there, there's a more robust strategic buyer market amongst the chemical companies. But you know, you really don't have a track record of expertise in private equity in a lot of these markets. And so you don't have private equity buyers, which is sort of the you know, the crutch for a lot of other markets without big corporate strategic buyers. And so I think that's going to be a real challenge. And until the investor market matures a little bit, it's, it's going to be an ongoing one for entrepreneurs. And as someone who's saying, are you aware of large companies like FCMG who start playing the role of investors or circular economy SME incubators? Regard, especially regarding uh, waste recycling, so plastics. Yeah, there are isolated incidents of that. And in fact, with, you know, Circulate Capital is, has launched an incubation network with Second News, McKinsey.org and others. And we work, the incubation model is one broadly, right? That is well-documented, that is practiced globally and Andy, the Aspen Network of Development Entrepreneurs, actually did a really interesting analysis of the efficacy of incubators in emerging markets, mm-hmm. which I recommend. And, and corporate sponsors absolutely have been involved, including in Southeast Asia, um, notably, where there's visible market gaps in terms of support for entrepreneurship. So from an incubation standpoint, 
I think having that connection to corporate markets and intelligence and expertise is really helpful for entrepreneurs. It still doesn't mean they're a strategic buyer for your business at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, it's that's not quite the same, but it is invaluable. I mean, I think if I were an entrepreneur, I would rather have, you know, that corporate sponsorship early in the game to help me shape what kind of markets I was trying to get access to and my product market fit and my awareness of competition, right? Rather than, you know, having them buy me out in seven years. Well, I was going to ask you as a last question because we ran out of time, unfortunately, when things go really exciting, that's what happens. I was going to ask you one piece of advice that you give to an entrepreneur, but actually you've just given loads of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think this has been extremely helpful for uh, entrepreneurs, hopefully for others in the industry as well. So thank you very much again for, for joining us today. Marco, again, thank you. Thank you for having me. For more insights from Impact Investors, visit www.theinvestmentclinic.com.